my seven-year-old is going to be in a meeting in 40 years. She's going to be 47. She's going to be an executive somewhere, some company she started. She's going to go, damn it, listen. Some, we, does anyone know a white man that we can look at to hire? <laughs> That's just a taste of a really fun conversation I was lucky to have with Jamie Kassab. Folks, before we put our ears on the rest, I want to say this. Jamie's interview kicks off a celebration for No Such Thing podcast as we round the corner of 100 episodes. I can't even begin to thank everyone who's had something to do with this show continuing forward. Jamie is one of a lot of enormously talented professionals of all kinds who, when asked by me, can I share our conversation so that other people who care about learning in the digital age will benefit, who said yes. My favorite conversations are the ones where people whose ideas I admire get comfortable enough in a conversation to share beyond the ideas you might have heard already. Jamie's a great example. If you work in or around K-12 education, chances are you've bumped into Jamie at some point. As education evangelist at Google, Jamie's keynoted and shared on more stages than I can count. But at this, an important transition for Jamie from his role at Google, where he had a hand in launching arguably the most consequential hardware and software for educators of the last decade, maybe two, I was honored getting to take advantage of a moment where we could chat completely free of an organizational role with Google that he's now shed to pull from him some of his experience and ideas about where we're headed that you might not have heard. Jamie didn't hesitate to support the show, and I'm sure I have dozens of colleagues out there for whom he's been equally supportive. I hope you'll hear from our chat that while he's moved on from the role at Google, his title as evangelist seems like a lot more. I think you'll hear from what he has to say that he cares deeply about this topic. And talking about it isn't so much a choice as a way of being. I feel really lucky to have people like that accessible through this show, and I hope you do too. I hope you'll consider, in honor of our 100th episode milestone, heading back to wherever you download the show and give us a rating and a review. If you really want to go above and beyond, share the show with a friend over social media and let me know so I can say thanks personally. Enjoy the conversation. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about learning in the digital age. I'm Mark Lesser. I have a 28-year-old, a 20-year-old, and a six-year-old, a seven-year-old. She just turned literally seven on Sunday. Um, and so technically I have three kids, but I like had one at a time. It's just easier that way. So it's actually a, a perfect segue to... Uh, because I wanted to ask you about your kids. And I okay. think one of the things that, um, you Are know- Are we doing this? Are we in this already? Oh, we're we in it. We're in it. Oh, okay. We're in it. Okay, got it, got it. Uh, cold open. Got it. Um, I think people, a lot of a lot of folks who have heard you talk know that you have kids. Um, mm -hmm. I, I haven't heard a lot of you talking about how your kids have contributed or impacted you in the way that you want to contribute to education. And I, I hope right. that we could sort of start there. Yeah, that's great. That's a great place to start. Yeah. So uh, I, I'll say again, I got a 28 year old who's about to be 29, which is mind blowing when you think about it. Um, Cause I still feel like I'm 29. So having someone <laughs> who's that old. So I have a 28 year old, a 20 year old and a seven year old and no one ever believes. So there's a couple of stories that nobody ever believes that I'm, that I'm going to have to 
tell under some kind of, you know, FBI polygraph test at some point in my life. And, and the first one is that I have never looked at my kids' grades. Never. I, I don't care what their grades are. Are my kids happy? Are they being bullies? Are they being bullied? Um, do they, are they enjoying their life? Do they smile? Those types of things. Um, I most, the, the irony is that most teachers who have to deal with my kids do not like me very much. <laughs> and my six year old, my seven year old is about, my seven year old teacher is about to learn the same lesson. Um, so, so I don't look at my kids grades cause I didn't care about their grades. Um, I also, I'm not, I'm not an advocate of homework. Um, and so, and there's a different homework is one of those broad categories when in reality it's it's home home there's two types of homework there's homework of like i have to finish something or i have to think about something mm -hmm. and then there's homework of i just i'm getting busy somebody's giving me busy work to keep me busy there's a there's a difference between those two things so for both my kids if they're working on projects or if they're learning or if they're doing some research or if they if they need more time to explore an idea or develop a thought or whatever, then they can come home and and do that. It was the worksheets with the, you know, thirty mathematical formula, formulas with no progression, right? So the first question is one plus four, and you know the ninetieth question is four plus one, right? Like I, there's no progression in the learning. So I would watch my kid like do five or six of them, get them all right immediately. And then write on the piece of paper, uh, my my kid has gotten this concept, so he's he's done here. And I would sign it. Right. And right. so it would screw up teachers who didn't know how to handle that kind of feedback. Um, so 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 that's an example. So I don't look at my kids' grades, so that there's no incentive for me from an education perspective to tell me what my kid can do to get a better grade. I could care less. So so that's one way. Um the other, you know, those, you know, I tell the story about my 28 year old when she came to me and she was in, she was in college. She, she told me she was going to be a business major, you know, after her first year. And I said, I was surprised. I'm like, business, why business major? Why business major? And she goes, well, you know, with a concentration on marketing, because when I looked at jobs in that space, I saw, um, you know, the most, the, the, the closest jobs that were to the things that I'm passionate about were in the marketing space in business. So I'm going to be a business, ma business major. And I said, nope, not paying for that. And this is again, no parent ever believes this. It's in a book, but uh, somebody interviewed us both once. And so it's in a book, but, um, I said, I will pay for you be to be an arts major, right? I will pay for you to be a film major. That's what I'll pay for because this kid had been making movies since she was five years old on any device she could find. Yeah. She's been telling stories with video since she was five years old. So I said, I will pay for that. And you know, now she is a film editor, film producer, director. She works at CNN. She makes some of the best fake news you can find. She, um, she works on branding con uh, content. She does, uh, work on the side, working with an organization that I'm associated with called Frontlines of Justice. Mm -hmm. um, and so they're, they're, she's doing some editing on that. And she actually told me this great story because she was actually editing content about me, right? So so we did this whole film thing. And so she was the editor who was editing the content. And so she said, I would sit there and like watch your video for half an hour. And at the end of it, I would have no idea what you just said because... <laughs> 
I just, I don't listen to you ever. And so it's just like actually having to watch you professionally. I just shut you out. I completely, as soon as you open up your mouth, I tune you out. So it was this very difficult project for her. Now, my 20 year old is in college. He's a junior. He came to me and this is the, the ironic twist in the story. He came to me two years ago and he said, I want to be a political science major. And I was like, political science, you don't even know who the governor is. No, you're not going to be a political science major because <laughs> this kid has had access to the, to the governors, to mayors, to senators, to Congress people who have been at our, you know, I'm not naming names, but there have been people who are in Congress right now who have thrown up in my pool, right? Like, like, like she has been in that space. He has been in that space his whole life. And Never once has he ever shown any interest in it. Never once has he said, hey, can I work on this campaign or can I do this or can I go work for this? Like ne he's had that opportunity his whole life. Never once picked it. What he didn't realize, and this is a more of a story about our kids not knowing who they really are, um, is that he's actually born to be an educator. He was born to be a teacher. I knew that from an early age. He's a brilliant storyteller, but in a different way, not in a video way in a, let me teach you a lesson way, right? Um, and so he's gonna be an educator, so he's studying English, he's gonna either be an English teacher or he's going to teach teachers how to teach English in college. I, I don't know where that will end up, but that's that's his path. And so he's, he's gonna end up being in the education space. But the point is that, and I work with universities on this all the time, and this is such an easy fix, which is, Kids don't know who they are, and it's so easy to give them the opportunity to really identify the things that they're good at, the things that they're passionate about, the things that they care about. Even if it's uh, you know a 20-minute assessment of like, tell me the things you're interested in. You know, just a basic kind of assessment. Mm -hmm. You know, I did one of those career assessments that I you know I'm working with an organization, and the assessment was a kind of like middle career path track. Like, what do you do from here? And mine came back as either as an entrepreneur, mm -hmm. a social entrepreneur, or someone who helps entrepreneurs. I'm like, yeah, I wish I wish I did that assessment. Not that I regret anything in my life, but it would have been a lot easier 30 years ago to have that assessment or 50 years ago whenever I was in college. So, so my kids have impacted me in education in lots of different ways. Now we have a my first grader who is in a Montessori school is starting to, you know, bring home like, you know, words for spelling tests. And I'm like, because we're in 1972, like, I don't, I'm like, why? I get that she should be a good speller, mm -hmm. but I'm more interested, more interested in is, 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 are the words that she's spelling. I'm more interested in her understanding what the words mean. Right. So when she's going through the spelling test. I look at the words, I'm like, what does that word mean? What does this word mean? What does this word mean? I could care less how you spell it. I mean, that's what spell checkers are for. So yeah, no, educators in general like my message and what I talk about, educators who have to deal with my actual kids, they're not the biggest fans. <laughs> uh, that's great. Um, they they unfollowed quickly when uh, yeah they they they, un, they unfollow when like oh no no that's great for other other yeah. people but not for me good good for a keynote less less in practice is what is what feedback you but well and and the reality is that it's not it's it's actually it's this stuff's not hard to do this is like it's literally making a choice as to what works or what doesn't work and going with that well, I mean why look. Just look at homework, for example. 
even even if you could show me research that tells me that doing homework is increases a child's ability to be a human being by 900%. Right. Even if you showed me data that said that, and there is no data that says that, mm-hmm. so let's just put that to the side. Actually, all the data shows you that there's almost no gain from doing homework at all. So even if it did, we spend billions of dollars in this country on these, on like stress management, creating work-life balances. We have this, you know, all, and instead what we could be telling first graders and second graders and third graders is that there's work. You go and you do your work. You, you go to this place and you do your work and then you're done. And then now you can focus on what you're passionate about, what you're interested in, and that there's a separation. But no, we take first graders and second graders and third graders and fourth graders and we tell them that, oh, no, you're just going to keep doing work at night, even though it has no value at all and is meaningless. In other words, even if you're going home and going through emails at the end of the night, right, um, that's meaningless. So the fact that I, I don't have any data for this, this is an interesting study. But the fact that people are stressed about, uh, you know, they go home at night and they do and they catch up on work or they do more work, I believe is directly tied to the homework culture in this country. Yeah, well, there's there's been I can I can I've mentioned it before and I I um, I can link to it in the show notes, but there's been some studies on um Time, yeah, on seat time, and this is a similar. It's yeah. sort of an adjacent idea. There were districts just in the last two years that um, reduced down to a four-day week um, for school, mm-hmm. and there was right. no demonstrable difference in outcome for students. For students right. who are doing a four-day versus a five-day week. Um, right. By the way, that's also true in the work world. Right. Right. So, so I have, I have a lot of questions on that, but I, but I, um, I mean, the thing I wanted to come back to and something that you just said is, so how did being a parent and realizing that you have some of these ideas, some of these values that you had a pretty hard line on make it hard for you to roll out product into an institution that in, in some ways is very, uh-huh. You know, you're very. You have been openly very indebted to and and grateful sure. for. At the same time, have some some pretty ideological um, yep. contrast with. So, how did that make it hard for you to roll out? You know, so 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 a couple. Google? Right. So a couple of things about that. Number one, and that's a great question uh, because that's one of the reasons I don't work there anymore. Um, it you know part of it is, look, I I. My work at Google boils down to one idea or one memory, which is if you ask me on the if you ask me when I was 11 years old what happened on December 7th, or December 7th, 1941, for example, and I didn't know, I'd have to say I I have no earthly idea. I will come back tomorrow and I will tell you, mm-hmm. and then I have to spend the next 24 hours trying to find that out. I would either have to find an adult that was intelligent enough to know, and kids like me don't grow up in those communities. I would uh, have to go to my encyclopedia in my house and kids like me didn't have encyclopedias in my house. So then I would have to go to the library, which wasn't my library. It was a library that belonged to everyone who lived in my community and everyone had access to that wasn't open on the weekends or closed at five o'clock at night. And so basketball practice went to 430. 
Um, or even if you found a book that you needed to tell you about what happened on December 7th, 1941, there's a great chance that book wasn't there because it belonged to everyone who lived in Hell's Kitchen, for example, the Columbus Library on 50th Street and 10th Avenue. What technology did, and this is where I think we've fallen, is it's opened up the world to that not being an important question anymore, right? That that defining the answers to that question takes 10 seconds, the second part is more important. The why. Well, what does it mean? How do you? What is? Uh, have we repeated that? Have we done that before? What, what was the impact of that? Like we can dive deep, and we don't. We stick to the facts. We stick to. Tell me what happened on December seventh, nineteen forty-one. If you don't know, you lose a point. We're still there. We're literally still there. When you know the idea of finding that out, I can, I can ask my watch. <laughs> Right, which again, ask my watch what happened on December seventh, nineteen forty-one. So, so for me, the my role at, at Google has always been about that, which is to open up, you know, the world to students, especially students like me. And yes, there are parts of those tools that were available to do really cool things, and there were parts of it that were just there to cover what you can currently do. And like anything, technology is uh, what you do with it. And so with the Chromebook, um, the Chromebook turning into assessment tools or to do take tests on it, when you literally are giving a kid a portal to the world, to everything, the, to, to the universe, you're giving a kid a portal to the universe. Now, if you choose to use that tool to, to make them do an assessment that you can report back on, I, that's that's hard for me to control. So the tool is available. The tool is there. And and so with Google Classroom, look, Google Classroom was uh, a great example of where there was a uh, where I had contradictions with what they what we were building because my what I wanted Google Classroom to become was a way to man for students to manage projects, right? To manage. In, independent self-directed work Themselves. right that was the whole the, that which is the whole point of it now when you're a, a product and and people who are buying or in this case using your product for free all of a sudden well i wish i could do this I could, then all of a sudden now you start getting into the development world so there is the opportunity to do a b and c but you can also do the traditional things that you currently do what choice do you want to make and so for every example you show you can show me of a of a school saying we're not doing anything differently we're just using technology now instead you know I can show you some great examples of schools and teachers and systems that said no no we're going to do this with complete in a completely different way I, like my friend Chris Lehman at at the at the Science Leadership Academy I know Chris right? he's great Yeah yeah he's a good friend of mine one of my, he was out in Sedona visiting me a couple of weeks ago nice. and He's a great example of someone who took this idea of inquiry-based learning and then said, how do we increase that? Well, how do we make that better using technology? You know, using not just Chromebooks, but Google Classroom and, and Gmail and Calendar and all those things, right? So, like, how the, t the tools are amazing to do things like create and collaborate, and they're all free, right? That, that's the other part. That, you know, I was excited by that. So, you're, here you have tools to do word processing that you can do with anyone in the world in real time for free, right? Now, if you chose to use that tool to make your student write an assignment that 
you could have you know, written on a typewriter 50 years ago. That's your choice. I, I can't control that choice. I can only be out there and talking about why that's not the best use of technology. So this idea that show me how technology improves learning is one of those questions I got all the time. And my response was always, okay, great, I will, when you show me how textbooks improve learning or how desks improve learning. These were all tools. What we do with these tools matters. And so here we are in a generation of students and just even the idea like digital skills, like just look at the Stanford study. 80% of high school kids can't tell you the difference between a, a fake story and a real story. 80% of elementary school kids can't tell you, uh, can't pull out a sponsored story out of four stories presented to them, right? So where are the digital skills? Where are the, the building digital leadership skills? Where are the, here's your portal to the world. We're going to show you how to use these. And we're going to take your curiosity and the things that you're passionate about and the things that you care about. And we're going to use these tools to, to make you dive deep into that world. So I don't think it's, you know, just every, anything medicine can be used to cure or you can get addicted to it. Fire, you can use to cook food or you can burn a house down. Guns, you can use to protect yourself or to go shoot up a movie theater, right? Everything has a good side and a bad side and the rest of it is choice. First of all, I want to, I want to say this, Chris Lehman is a super talented principal and I want to encourage everybody to go check out his uh, science leadership academy was was a school and and community that he was part of founding in Philadelphia. And um, Educon is a conference that's one of one of the most innovative um, education conferences I've ever participated in. In part because yep. it's it's um, it's student led in several aspects and uh, yep. and it actually takes place in the context of a school which right. what a novel idea that we're not not in a Sheridan right. ballroom right um so also the out, sessions the Chris. sessions are also yeah no everyone should should go it's it's an angry based um conference which is you go in and speak for 20 minutes. It's an hour and a half session because, you know, what can you really do in 45 minutes? It's an hour and a half session. You go in and speak for 20 minutes and your job isn't to drop knowledge on everyone. It's to lead a discussion, right? To ha to make your point and then have a discussion about it, which is what the whole principle is. Because that stuff's not easy to do. And so, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a great event. I've gone almost... The whole time I've known him, I've probably missed two of them, but I, I go and I almost, I never participate as a, I'm never, I'm never there to speak. Although I, you know, I have sat there on panels and I've done sessions, but I usually go just to hang out and experience and go to sessions and be part of the discussion. Uh, it's worth checking it out. If you are a young professional in this space, seeking great uh, professional growth opportunities, which there, in my personal opinion, there are, uh, there is a dearth of. Sure. Um, so, so that was one thing, but, uh, yeah. but to come back to, um, the points you're making, I think, um, I think it makes sense. I wanted to ask, do you feel like we're better off that everybody is now, uh, whether it's Chromebooked or, uh, you know, whatever, whatever system they're using, there are right. a lot of, you know, um, Google Classroom and Chromebooks were definitely a big part of the sort of movement to to be one to one or or close, right? And right. Um, at, at least the 
the ethos of one to one. Um, and I wonder, do you feel like the innovation of practice, once everybody was connected, do you feel like there was more likelihood to see that innovation? Or do you feel like it just sort of diluted to the point of uh, everybody right. sort of turning off what was exciting about the potential? Do you get what yeah, I'm, I'm asking? Yeah I, do. yeah, I get what you're asking. And I think innovation first replaces something um, and you do that for a while. And I think really comes down to, well, what is a while? Right. So um, the I, the iPhone is not a new thing. Right. The iPhone is uh, an iteration of the telephone that sat on our desks for a long time. And, and, and so the first thing that we do is we replace the current system. So my hope, and you know, part of this is we got into this two year pandemic. My hope is that we start seeing some of that innovation happen because you have the tools that you need to do that. And, and, and this, you're starting to see some of it already happen, right? So my seven year old, for example, you know, I've been talking about how, you know, she got dropped off at school today. I honestly could care less. I want look, I, there, the, 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 you know, when she started first grade in my head, these, this is what I wanted. I wanted her to be able to read at a higher level by the time she was done. So more advanced text reading and understanding. I wanted her to, I, I was hoping that we don't screw up math too much with her because she doesn't actually know that math is a subject. She has no concept of that. She was born in a world where math is just life, right? So math isn't everything. Be nice math. Be nice if you could make that stick, right? Math, math exactly. Math isn't everything. Like, tell me something that doesn't have math in it. Tell me something in a natural world. Tell me something in a man-made world that doesn't have math. So she knows that math is how you build things, you make things. And and so, you know, she's she's big into space because I am. And so this idea that you sent a a space orbit or to the the sun to circle the sun to get data, you know, in her head she's like, "How the hell did they do that?" Mm. And the answer is math. And so you can dive into that. And so for her to understand that level of math, she needs to understand math more and more and more, just like anything. So she doesn't know that math has subjects in it. She understands math as in, in intertwined into everything. So I'm hoping that they don't blow that too much for her. And then honestly, the rest of it, the, the subjects, I could, if she wants to, we spent a weekend talking about these things, these water, this is not video, but these, um, water holder insulated like, water bottle insulated like water. like how does this bottle keep the water cold she's got one that you put water into it and 16 hours later the water's still cold mm -hmm. she's like how how does that work there's no there's no ice cubes in it there's no refrigeration it's not tied to any electricity how does it keep it she we spent oh she wanted to take she wanted to find a place that we can cut one of these in half and open it up to see what how we made these things and so we dove into videos and we dove into, into what was out there and how they were made and why they are insulated and what keeps them that way. And, and again, by the way, all math, just, you know, for the record. Mm -hmm. So if she wants to study that for a week, do that. If she wants to study the ancient art of Chinese shoelace tying in the Ming dynasty, then she can learn that. I don't, I don't care what the subjects are. What I care is, is she learning how to problem solve? Is she 
collaborating? Is she using critical? Is she building critical thinking skills? Is she being creative? Right. Those are the things that I want her to learn how to do in the subjects. And I hope that the subjects, especially in the early grades, are more tied to what she's interested in, what she's, you know, what what she wants to know. We for, we've made up our minds that every kid has to know that. George Washington was the first president. He never told a lie and he had, you know, wooden teeth. Like, what else do you remember about George Washington in fourth grade, right? For some reason, we decided that that's what we wanted to focus on. And so as the kids get older, you can redefine what is the content that they're supposed to learn. And you can be more, you know, you can, you can tighten up more. At the early, you know, my, my kid's seven, who cares, what subject she's learning right now, right? I don't, why, why does that matter? As long as she's progressing and getting better and, and her curiosity is driving a lot of her learning, that's what you want to do. The problem is that that's not easy to do. That's hard, right? One of my favorite things in the ed tech space is when someone will say to me, well, how does that scale, right? Like, how do you scale this product or this program or whatever, this content? And, and I'm like, Scaling is what got us in trouble in the first place. There is nothing more scaled than education. Every fourth grader learns the same stuff everywhere, right? That's easy. Scaling is easy. The individualizing the learning, teaching the critical skills. And the problem is that what we're not realizing, and look, I don't I don't talk about education being broken. It's not broken, actually. If, again, I'm, I'm a data-driven kind of guy. Graduation rates are the highest they've ever been in history. And this is before the pandemic, so I haven't seen numbers since. But graduation rates were the highest they've ever been. Graduation rates high school. Are the high school graduation. High school graduation rates are the highest they've ever been for black students, Latino students, girls across the board. Content that we teach now or the level of understanding of things is so much stronger than it was even 40 years ago. Education's not broken. It's 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 doing what it was designed to do, and it's doing it in an amazing way. The problem is that the world is dramatically changing, and we're not adjusting to that fast enough, in my opinion. Again, it's not about technology or the robots coming. It's about I don't I don't get hired because I know what happened in World War II. I get hired because I have problem-solving skills or I have an ability to tell a story, or I have an ability to critically think about something and give a different point of view or an opinion, right? So we know these things, and and, and the reason we don't do them is because they're hard, and that's just not good enough for me. No. So um, per personal stories time, I was hoping. Yeah. So a couple of things. One is I wanted to ask you, um, you... I most frequently see you introduced as Jamie. When did you start going by Jamie? And when you were a kid in Hell's Kitchen, were you mm -hmm. Jaime or Jamie? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, I, this is a story I've told before. I think it's on one of my YouTube videos. Um, my, I was, I didn't want to be Jaime because I didn't want to have a foreign sounding name. Mm -hmm. Because already at like, you know, in first and second grade, I knew that that just wasn't a cool thing. And I remember one of my teachers, and I don't remember the grade right now, but it was some substitute teacher who came in and said, um, you know, Jamie. And, and, and one of the kids said, no, it's Jaime. 
And and the teacher said, no, we're in America. It's Jamie, right? So it was one of those uh, things. Come on, look, I I'm old, right? So this isn't anything against teachers. I, I my arm, it's it's all and my arm got. This was on December first, right? December second, nineteen forty one. My arm got tied behind my back. My left arm got tied behind my back so I can learn how to write and write hand, right? Like I'm I'm like. We, we, these are old solutions to problems that didn't exist, but we didn't know it at the time. So, yeah, no, some substitute teacher said, no, his name's Jamie. We're in America. And so I'm like, oh, Jamie, sounds like that's what I want to go. So I went with Jamie because I didn't want to be different. I wanted to have a white sounding name. Mm. Even though I lived in a very diverse community like New York, it was still an issue. And, and then it got to a point where um, when people would say, Jaime, I was fine with Jaime. But most people um, would say uh, Jaime. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, that just drove me crazy. And so we get into this conversation. We're like, hey, you know, what's, uh, my, my name is Matt. My name is, uh, uh, or, you know, oh, hi, Jaime. I'm like, no, no, it's Jaime. I'm like, Jaime. I said Jaime. No, no, you didn't say Jaime. You, you, didn't, say, you didn't say Jaime. You said Jaime. Those are two totally different words. And so, like, how do you start a conversation like that, right? Like, it's just... It's just tension when you start relationships like that in a, in a casual conversation. So it just made it easier to go with Jamie and I stuck with Jamie. So, so it, it doesn't really matter. So, so that, uh, um, as soon as that happens, I'm like in, as the institution of K-12 learning goes, I'm having, if I'm, if I'm Jaime, I'm having a bad experience. Right. So yeah. So the question is, I want to have you tell a story in a second about that GPS meeting I saw, and and I'm going to mention um, yeah. your YouTube channel in a second. But um, there's this time between that substitute teacher who's um, making a, a horrible mistake that has the potential to really uh, set a tone for how this experience is going to go for you. So right. so from there to Google, yeah. What are some of the things that set you off on a course that that corrected some of what didn't work for you in the school setting? Yeah, and again, this is you know New York City public school systems in the 1970s and 80s, right? Like I, you know, I went to like four funerals in high school, so it was not. This is a different time and survival. It's Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and back then it was all about surviving and and surviving, and so different different criteria that you're using with students at the time. For me, I think I think it really comes down to I always felt like I could do more than the world that I saw in front of me. I, I don't know, I just felt like I could. I had this what I call reality distortion field, right? Where you know, you tell me I'm going to be a drug dealer and I'm going to be in prison. And I'm like, yeah, no, that's not my reality. I'm going to do something completely different. So I've always had this stubbornness, this reality distortion field, this, if you tell me I can't do something, I'm just going to go do it to prove that I can. Um, and, and I've always had that stubbornness with me. I think it was, I, I got, it's part of it is luck. Part of it was basketball. I've got to play basketball. So I was a good basketball player. I was captain of my high school basketball team. So I had to be, I had to have good grades. Uh, I technically went to college to go play basketball, ended up not playing, but now I'm in college. And I, look, I remember being in college. I was, I went to SUNY Brockport in upstate New York and I went to my political science professor. I was a double major. I was a political science and communications major. And I went to my professor and I said, 
I think I want to keep studying public policy. This is 1991, so we're in the middle of a recession. And he said, oh, um, I'm going to encourage you to, to apply to the Harvard School, uh, to, to the Kennedy School at Harvard, right? And I said, what? No, kids like me don't, I can't go to Harvard. I, I get eaten alive at Harvard. So I've, I've written about this before. It's this, re, this not just reality distortion field, but it's this, the, the counter to that is this low expectation syndrome that we live in, right? And, and so I didn't think kids like me could go to Harvard and, 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 and graduate from Harvard. I'd get eaten alive at Harvard. I've been paid by Harvard to speak at their institution in the past, right? So now I realize I would have gone to Harvard and I would have kicked their ass. But you don't know that at the time. And so that reality distortion field is great. But it also the counterbalance to that is the, these concepts around uh, low expectation syndrome that you have. I was a look. I I was working at Google. This is like five six years in. I'm standing on a stage, and I'm not going to talk about the organization who it was. But I'm talking to teachers at the end of it of my ten minutes. They all got up and they were screaming and chanting and loving the whole thing. And then I sat back down, and this executive director of a nonprofit, you know, a man, white man, turned to me and said, "You're so well spoken, right?" Like. I mean, this is, you know, eight years into Google, right? So it's not like, it's not that I don't, I don't have a college degree, a master's degree, that I worked for Governor Cuomo, that I was at Accenture for seven years, and now I'm in the middle of Google running education stuff. You still have this low expectation syndrome of what to expect from me, right? So understanding and knowing that that's always going to be there and, and that is, is part of life. It's just you, you deal with it. It's just, it's just part of what you want to be able to handle. Now, that being said... I remember being on, I, I got an interview for a job at Google and, and I did, I didn't even apply. They reached out to me. That's a whole other story. And I remember being on the one-on-one driving the night before to the hotel. Cause the next day I was doing a campus visit to, for like four more interviews. And I remember driving. And again, this is master's degree working for Cuomo, working at, uh, uh, working at Accenture for seven years, driving, saying, you know, maybe I'm smart. Maybe I didn't, maybe I am smart. Like literally I was like, you know, 40 years old or less than that, 30 something years old when I realized that, Hey, maybe I am smart. So we don't really think about the, 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 the expectation that we have of students. And I tend to be more on the opposite side, which is I don't think we really fully appreciate the capacity and capability that humans have to do amazing things. And that's everyone. And so for me, there, you know, like I said, I left Google and, you know, what I talked about in one of my channel on one of my videos is this idea that I can make one of two assumptions that I've been successful in my career and in my life, because I'm a super genius with a 900 IQ, or that's one possibility. And the other, or the other possibility is that there are millions of students who are just like me, who have the same capacity, cap, same capacity, same capability, but they're not getting those opportunities. And what I want to focus on is building those opportunities. Mm. One of the stories I love from the YouTube channel, which I know is one of the places you've been spending some of your energy. I stopped doing it in, in July because honestly I left Google and I, I didn't have, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. Mm -hmm. I just started picking back up, writing down scripts for new videos mm -hmm. that I, I want to do. Most, you know, I've, it's funny, I've predicted the work shortage that we're in right now, right? Like we, 
employers can't find employees. And I've been trying to warn them for like 20 years, but really the last five or six years, I saw this coming. I saw this generation of kids who are like, you know what, your, your story of like, come work here for 30 years and spend, you know, 80 hours a week working so that you can buy a bigger house and a bigger car. And then, and then, you know, you can fire me like you did to my parents Mm -hmm. right before I get to retire. I'm not buying into that. Not working for me. It's not going to work for me. And the technology that we have, any kid with a laptop can start a business, right? So I saw, I saw this coming for, for a long time, this generation of students who looked at the world differently. And again, that's the opportunity that we have. I was, I was in Safeway and I'm in downtown Phoenix right now. I've been spending time up in Sedona, but I'm in Phoenix in my studio and I was in Safeway, I don't know, this is like a month or two months ago. And, you know, you, you see those banners that say, um, you know, um, you know, peanut butter, bread, tells you where things are, which never work. But anyway, so one of those banners, one of the lines, you'll never be able to look at this the same way again in any store that you go into, is one of the banners says Hispanic foods, mm. right? And, and or ethnic foods. And, and, you know, the Hispanic food one cracked me up because you walk down the aisle and there's, you know, five or six rows that are, you know, arm length of Hispanic food products. And then you look up the aisle and then you look down the aisle in downtown um, Safeway, which is, you know, Arizona is like a Phoenix is like a 40 percent Hispanic population where I live. It's like 174 percent Hispanic population. (laughs) And you look up and down the aisle and every person in the store is Hispanic. Right. There is no Hispanic section. The whole store is Hispanic. So when are we going to start helping students develop the skills to build products and services for those communities? Mm-hmm. The African-American market is a trillion-dollar market. The Latino market is a trillion-dollar market. Who's building products and services for those markets, right? It's, it's, we, need to, we need to switch. We need to, we need to flip on this because the opportunities are there. I, this idea of we need more diver- – we don't need diversity. My, look, my, my seven-year-old is going to be in a meeting in 40 years. She's going to be 47. She's going to be an executive somewhere, some company she started. She's going to damn it, listen – some we so does anyone know a white man <laughs> to hire? <laughs> so, so I I tend to look at the world a little differently, and like this concept of even I you know I tend to set fires on on things sometimes, but you know when I see things like we need we need to listen to our Latino and black brothers and sisters and hear their voices, and we need to empower them. I'm like. No, you don't. No, I don't need your, just, why do you have power at all? I hate that word. You, why do you have power? You don't have any power. Just literally get out of my way and stop building policies that purposely put me down. Stop that. You want to help? Stop that. So that I can go and make a billion dollars because I also have the same opportunity that you do to make that kind of money. Right? Yeah. So it's a little bit of a different view on the world. So I'm going to link to the YouTube channel because I think regardless of, uh, you know, what content looks like in the next in the coming months, I know there's a lot scripted and you're you're working on things, but there's a lot of great content there. And um, I loved uh, I loved the virtual commencement last year. I thought was really solid and I thought was such a good idea. Um, One of the stories you told that I thought was pretty priceless was 
um, the story about the GPS meeting where, um, well, you, you tell it quickly because what I want to ask you is what I took from that this story is um, a, a moment in time where identity really mattered and, and you sort of flipped flipped to a place where you were like, okay, maybe I can maybe I can hang here. Um, and yeah. and the, the question I don't want to lose the time to ask you is about how much progress you think we've made since that moment. Uh-huh. And, um, and, and just give people a sense in, in the tech space, especially right. because we have now entire district, your former district in, uh, in New York City has uh, a mandate to bring computer science into um, the classroom right. for every student. Um, how much, uh, what I want to get your take on is the chasm between, um, the reality of the, you know, how, what we're setting young people up for and how well we're preparing them for that moment that you experience in that GPS meeting. Right. Uh, yeah. So I, I can, I, I can't wait to answer that question because there's a couple of different points on that, but the, the quick, the quick story is. Google used to have these meetings called Go Present Something, GPS meetings, where you would go in. And I went in with the CIO at the time uh, who I was working for. And so as people were gathering in, I this is me at Google now for like a month and a half, I think. And it's all blurry. But it's it's me going into this meeting. And as people were coming in, and again, Google doesn't have a dress code. So I'm in jeans and sneakers and a black T-shirt or whatever it is that I'm wearing. And as people are coming in, I'm noticing that they're all dressed really professional, right? Like, so Eric Schmidt is dressed really like in not, not like business casual with like khakis and a, you know, gap button down shirt, but like real clothes, right? Like slacks and a really nice button down shirt with cufflinks. And, and then Jonathan Rosenberg walks in and does the same thing. And then there's other, other big Google types at the time. They're all walking in and I'm like, Oh, well, maybe I'm not, maybe I need to dress better. If I'm going to play at this level, maybe I need to dress better. And then, um, Sergey walked in with like red basketball shorts, like an orange tank top, his whole hair all messed up and like air Nikes on. And I'm like, Nope, I'm okay. It's not, has nothing to do with what I look like. It has to do with what's inside my head, right? And and if Larry and Sergey can tell you anything, it's that that they were just going to do things the way they wanted to do things, and they didn't care what you look like or what you dress like or where you come from. They just cared what was in your head. Now, that that that's a a story about diversity. It's a story about feeling comfortable in the spaces that you're in. It's a, it has nothing technically to do with this idea of technology. I worry about this concept of making every kid do computer science for the wrong reasons, right? Again, like everything else, it's not about sitting there and learning coding, right? It's, it's about, it's, it's about wh- why you are learning coding, right? It's about the problem solving. It's about the computational thinking. It's about the engineering. It's not about learning a specific language. Like, Think if you think about it. So some guy somewhere in California right now, I'm holding up my iPhone, is sitting there typing up some code with you know parentheses and paragraphs and and different code numbers and letters, and they're saying, oh, we're gonna need this update to this next version of the software. So they're gonna sit there, type it up, and then at some point they're gonna test it, they're gonna put it together, and then they're gonna send it to my phone, and and then my phone is gonna get updated. That is the most primitive thing in the world. It is, it is the most, pr- it, look, 
I've been sharing this story right before before I left Google. Google had a breakthrough in quantum computing, and they took one of those mathematical formulas that spins forever, right? That mm-hmm. just, you know. And by the way, one of my favorite uh, Azella stories. My my seven year old when she was like five, uh, I was getting ready to the to put her in the bathtub, and she said. She's like, oh, why do I have to stop playing? I don't want to stop playing. And I go, oh, you know, everything comes to an end. She goes, no, it doesn't. Not everything comes to an end. I'm like, no, everything has an end. Everything has a beginning. Everything has an end. And she goes, numbers don't. I'm like, all right, F you. Because <laughs> um, she's right, right? There's no end. There's the one thing that doesn't have an end is numbers, right? So anyway, so take one of those mathematical formulas that spins forever and you feed it to a supercomputer the simulation in the simulation, it would take the supercomputer 10,000 years to process that equation. The breakthrough that Google had was they did it in 200 seconds, right? The another way of thinking about it is that in 2019, in 2000, sorry, yeah, 2019 and 2019 in technology years was like 27 years ago. 2019, Google's, um, um, machine, right? Uh, their quantum computing machine, which isn't a laptop, right? It's this giant room of scientists and copper wire and big, you know, it looks like one of those old IBM mm-hmm. labs. Um, that machine in 2019 was a hundred and this is a hard number to, con- con- to, to, to understand was 168 million times faster than the world's most powerful supercomputer. Mm. 168 million times faster. Another way of thinking about it is that this phone, this iPhone, this modern technology is 168 million times slower than what's coming. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that you're going to teach a kid, you know, C++ or, you know, any kind of coding skills so that they can go sit in a lab and type up power. No, this this machine will one day not only have an endless battery that just stays on, but it will also uh, com- constantly and continuously update itself. Mm-hmm. And not only that, it'll do it based on your life. It'll individualize the update for you. Most It's funny. Most people, when I was working at Google, if you ask Googlers to rate, um, you know, search from a scale of one to ten, uh, most Googlers would rate it like a one, right? Like the in terms of what was possible, in terms of how primitive search is compared to, to what you want to do. And don't get me started on Siri, right? Like I actually posted something on my Instagram stories from last week when I said to Siri, how many more days is it to Azela's birthday? And Siri kept coming back with, um, Azela's birthday is, uh, you know, uh, August 29th <laughs> next, next week. I'm like, that is not the question I asked. Mm-hmm. Right. And so in terms of technology and what's coming, we're at the beginning of this. We are, we are cavemen and women when it comes to what's coming, right? My, my, one of my, one of my favorite people in my network, um, is used to be the head of, uh, innovation for NASA, right? And now he's actually got a, you would think that that would be the best title in the world. He's got a better job. His job now is he is director of technology integration for Mars, right? Like that's literally <laughs> his job. Right? And I'm like, you know, and my joke to him is like, wait, so you have to make sure the Wi-Fi works? Like, <laughs> like, like, so that's his job. And, you know, we have conversations about airplanes, for example. And here we are in this primitive making fire out of wood caveman world 
where we're trying to make planes faster and we're trying to make them lighter and more fuel efficient. And one day, and not the very far future, I will be able to fly from Phoenix to New York in 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Because we're not going to make faster planes. We're going to make planes that go higher and down faster. And if we can figure that out, we'll be able to figure that out. So we are at the very, very beginning of this. And I tell you all this because this idea that we you know, should be teaching kids computer science and we should be teaching them how to code is great as long as we're doing it for the right reason. Not because they can go out and get you know, jobs as software developers, because right now they can, but even those jobs are temporary, right? The, the machines are coming, right? Um, and so I think we should double down on human skills, right? Problem solving, critical thinking, collaboration, the ability to learn. Ability to learn, by the way, I know, is your show four hours, by the way? Uh, the ability to learn, <laughs> Uh, is the is the most important one that we could be teaching students right now. If all we did all day long is teach kids how to learn, we're 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 way ahead of the game. The problem isn't that is that isn't isn't that it's a policy issue. The problem is that we're humans, and that and the problem is that we ourselves as educated humans don't see it. Like we don't see it. Like you know. I say this all the time, you know, when, uh, when, when educators come to me and say, I, you know, I'm just not good with technology. I'm just not good with technology or business professionals who call me and pay me lots of money will say, I, you're very creative. I'm not very creative. I want to be more creative. Like I'm not creative. You're, I'm not good. Or students will say, I'm not good with math. My response back, especially to the adults. And this is why I don't have a lot of friends is no, these are choices. You're choosing not to be creative. You're choosing not to be good with technology because what you need to be good at those things is out there. And just because you take one shot at it and you don't get it doesn't mean that that's the end of the road. You're making a choice and that's okay too, right? Like I, I, it's, 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 it's these little tiny language shifts that we have to do, right? So you will never, ever, ever hear me say I am a bad cook. Mm. I, I've just chosen not to be a good one. Yeah. And there's a huge difference in those two worlds. And so that's, if we can teach our kids to say, I choose to do this, I choose to be good at this, or I choose to learn more about this, and I have the tools so I know what I know, what I don't know, I know where to learn how to, how to know, and then, I, and then I, need, I know how to assess myself as to whether I know or not know. If we can create that ecosystem for students that could get us so far. And this actually circles back to this idea of the technology that, you know, you talked about my, my YouTube channel. When I started my YouTube channel, I knew zero about video, zero about videography, zero about recording, zero about editing. I, like I said, I, my daughter, who's a filmmaker and I said, where do I start? And she said, she, you know, she laughed for 20 minutes about me starting a YouTube channel. And we have these great debates where I'm like, Hey, look, my, my new video got 700 views. And she goes, that's so exciting. Uh, mine got 52 million, right? Like, like, so we have those discussions all the time. And, 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 and she goes, you know, shoot a 20, shoot a 24 frames per second, double your frame rate, keep your ISO at 100, get an ND filter, get a very variable ND filter so you can go outside and change the light so you don't have to mess with the shutter. And she gave me like these like top five tips to start. And I said, cool, thank you. Well, here's my next question. What the hell do any of those words mean? And then I went and learned. 
am am I gonna make a am I gonna beat Steven Spielberg for for an Oscar one day? No, that's not what I'm not gonna be that kind of filmmaker. I've learned what I need to learn for the choices that I've made, and and that's where we can spend our that's where the technology is incredibly powerful, and we don't take advantage of it at all. I think it's a it, speaking of of uh, you brought up airplanes. <clears throat> um, I will. I do want to land land this one. Um, so so for now. Um, but the thing I wanted to ask you that that uh, I think is a good place to land and is very relevant to what you just described is is um, we talk. You know, it's unavoidable. You, we can't not talk about this year that we've had and COVID and, uh, over a year now. And, um, the, the question I wanted to pose is let's say COVID is a chance to reinvent education, Uh not, not to revise, but start over building systems to help, um, citizens, all of them contribute meaningfully. Um, what what to you, if you have to, um, if you had to pull like, Man, these few things would be the what you just described is is a change of axiom, like just just ways of thinking at a at a fundamental level that would change everything. What thinking have you done so far about what it would look like um, if we just scrapped it and started over? Sure, and and that's a great question. But again, I don't think we need to do that. That's the best part about this, right? Which is that. It's a culture shift. It's not a. It, it's a. It's a culture shift in in lots of different ways, but primarily it's a culture shift to understand that we don't we don't have to reinvent it. We just need to take the best. We know what good learning looks like. There's. We know what good learning is. We know what we know what inquiry based learning looks like. We know how to do project based learning. We know these things. There's enough research and science out there to know what kids should know, how they should know it, when they should know it. You know, we, we have all that. What we need to do is make a decision that that's what we want to do and then come up with our iteration plan. How do you start on day one? So it, the, the new education system is not something that we have to build for the next 20 years. It literally starts on Monday and then Tuesday and then Wednesday. And this is constant uh, reexamining of being curious about things. Like I think we've lost I, our, our ability to be curious. The pandemic for for whatever it's going to cause in in the future. And there's, you know, I, I, I've, I'm on this whole kick about like, imagine the things that we would have brought up, um, you know, we brought up 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, that now would be controversial. Like, Hey, we should, everyone should wear seatbelts in their cars. No, I'm mm-hmm. going to pass a mandate that no one has to wear a seatbelt. Like, can mm-hmm. you imagine the things that would be controversial today? Um, so, so, I think that there's that world, which is the crazy world that we're in. But fundamentally, the couple of things that have happened with the pandemic is schools recognize that they can change a lot faster than they thought they could, that they can do things differently, that that all of a sudden now that the way they did things can be completely flipped upside down to do in a different way. And we're starting to see, right, how do we measure the difficult things? And why are we measuring whether a kid memorizes something or doesn't memorize something? What what good does that do? And we, what we can do is say, 
where are we, where is it that we want to go? What are the, what are the skills that you want my seven-year-old to have at the end of the school year? And how can I help her build those schools? Like, don't you, like my kid goes to one of the best schools in, in Phoenix. It's a Montessori school. And I've yet to have a conversation about my kid's goals for the year. Mm-hmm. That's insanity. Like, has she had the conversation? I know. Right. And so we know what to do. Again, it's a choice. And look, we should be paying teachers a thousand percent more than we're paying them. And we should be building the best schools in the world. And we should be because it's not that education is the silver bullet or that education is the right thing to do. It is literally the most necessity thing that we need in this world. Like we, we need smart people for what's coming. And we need people to constantly do things in different ways. And we're going to need people to have these deep human skills. Like one of the most ironic terms to me is artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. If you compare where we are today with artificial intelligence to the human brain, it's a, it's, it's a pipe dream. Like there, it's ironic that it's called art. There's no, it's like one, one hundredth of a thousandth compared to the power of the human brain. Like we're knowing, we don't even understand the human brain mm-hmm. or how it works. And you're going to tell me that we have artificial intelligence. We don't. So if we can actually focus on intelligence, focus on original thought, focus on having a point of view and a, and a perspective, yeah. and we can focus on that and find ways to measure the things that are important, the, the, the critical thinking skills, the problem solving skills, what I call the human skills, then it's okay that we want to measure the other stuff too. But how do we start, how do we start introducing the, those kinds of metrics? And, and here's the thing is that parents, at least the parents that I know, finally got a view inside their school. and be like, wait, that's what they teach my kid? Or that's what my kid has to learn? Or like, wait, that's exactly what I learned when I was in fifth grade, right? And so parents for the first time are seen uh, and some of them are starting to push back on what it is that we're, we're teaching their, their students, their, their kids, because this isn't even about getting a job. This isn't even about preparing them for a workforce. This is literally about preparing them to have the skills to take on this crazy world that's coming. We are, we are cavemen and women and someone's like, look, there's fire. And there's another caveman or another caveman woman going, oh, one day we're going to be able to use this fire mm-hmm. to drive mo- locomotives across rails at speeds that you can even imagine. And the other one, other cave people are like, well, you're insane. You're crazy. Right? Like, that's where we are right now. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to beat cave people as a, uh, as a place to, to, to wind up. And, and, you know, look, I mean, I, I, I'd be, I think if I had more talent in filmmaking, I would make videos like that. I would, like, put actors and actresses together and create these kind of parallel worlds of, of what it would be like to have the conversations that I'm trying to have now, yeah. but back in the caveman and women days. Yeah, I like it. Well, I believe in you. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, I'm not getting people just, that's just, that's just the, that's just the asking for trouble in a long Right, way. right. So, uh, before we hang up, um, what, what organizations are you invested in yeah. right now? You mentioned Frontlines of Justice and I, uh-huh. I just want to, I want to plug for people the things you care about because I think, um, yeah. I think it's, it's, uh, people will want to know and want to support sure. the things that you support. Yeah, so a couple of things that I'm working on right now. One is I'm working with my friend Chad, um, 
who started him and a, a group of, of friends started this concept called Frontlines of Justice. And it was um, basically professional development for educators around justice issues, right? And there's like social justice 101. I did one on cultural relevancy skills. Mm. But the way they did it is more modern than your typical professional development where they used real photography, real like a master series class, if you will. Yeah. And it, like, if you take my 45 minute talk, you break it up into five minute segments, you teachers can go in and see five minutes at a time and they'll have assessment questions and they'll have reflection questions and I'll have questions to think about for the future to come back to and answer later. Right. So it's, it's a very interactive professional development system nice. using technology, using modern film. And they don't even know this, they, they have, they, they're building a really good, fresh, modern professional development platform. They just happen to be focused on social justice or justice issues right now, which is great. So I'm working with them. That's one project that I'm on. I'm working with Grand Valley State University. Philly's the 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 president there. And her and I and a great team there put together and are still putting together events around equity and higher education. How do we bring real equity into higher education to get more students like me into positions of influence and, and power? Mm-hmm. Um and and so we a couple of weeks ago we had an event where six universities participated and it was student driven. So the students, the diverse students, and they were all made up of a whole bunch of different colors and religions and people and what they look like and men and women. They came up with the ideas on like to be more inclusive or to focus more on equity. These are the projects that we think university universities should focus on. So doing work with them, following up on that, I think that that is critical because, you know, one of my videos is about imposter syndrome and I don't think it's any worse than it is for a student of color that doesn't go to a historic black college or historic Latino college to have that kind of experience where they don't feel like an imposter. So working with them on what that looks like and working on the business side with one organization, I don't know if people are familiar with GEMS Education, um, international school system out of Dubai and in India and the Middle East. The, uh, the leader there had this vision three years ago to build a technology platform that gets education, that gets the tech, to your point, gets the technology out of your way, hmm. right? So you take the system, you plug it in, and it does everything. It does all the classroom management tools. It does all the student management tools. It does all the administration tools. It does buses and cafeterias and everything. What happens if we just have a system in 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 front of us that is invisible where we don't have to worry about it? What can we do with learning? So I'm really excited about the work that we're doing there because I think it's I think that's the future, the the potential. It's the analogy I came up with is getting into your car. You get into your car, you press the start button. Now you can go wherever the hell you want, right? And imagine you, instead you start, you press the start button and you have to press the this button and you have to turn on the wheels and then you have to like make sure the wheels were talking to the, and then five minutes later it wasn't. So you have to go back like in, in the Microsoft Windows version of it, right? And and so what happens if you can get into your classroom, press the start button and just focus on learning and not worry about the technology getting in your way? So I'm excited about the work that we're doing there. And there's a couple other projects here and there that haven't that I am not mentioning yet that I'm working on. But 
it's been exciting. And and the question I've been answering uh, is one of the questions I get all the time when I do presentations is how do you deal with resistance to change, mm-hmm. right? My answer, I have two answers. One will say for the next time, but the other answer is I have no idea uh, because I'm too busy working with people that want to change. And so that's what I did when I left Google is I started working with organizations that wanted to do things differently and saw the potential, saw the capability and the capacity that students have to do amazing things. And that's what I want to focus on. Jimmy, I can't thank you enough. I hope uh, I I know that uh, there are a lot of people who will uh, listen and get as much from the conversation as I do. And uh, this is a really a really meaningful dialogue to me. And and one of as as you just sort of spoke to one of hope. You know, looking forward and and not looking back. And I really I have appreciated your perspective for a very long time from you know sort of ships passing perspective. But I'm really grateful for the time to a have you come and celebrate the shows. 100th episode is coming up and, awesome. and you are you are a uh, featured guest <laughs> we hopefully get get wiser as we grow older as a show but also just as a an opportunity to sit down with you and have some one-to-one time it's been really meaningful to me yeah well thank you very much for having me based on the clock this will be show 100 101 <laughs> 102 and 103 maybe, maybe. <laughs> maybe. maybe. Jamie, thank thanks you. for having me thank you a ton appreciate it yeah bye-bye for more info about advertising with us, sponsoring the show, or if you have story ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter, at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in Episode Zero, alumni of two bomber nations, Ithaca and the Bronx, New York, and engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No such thing is produced by me. Mark Lesser, a learner like you and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org.